Well, welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Boyce and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And all of you out there in podcast land know me, uh, but you don't know the other gentleman either on the other side of the screen or who's going to speak to you on the audio side if you're listening audio only. Uh, and his name is Bruce Cryer. Good day to you, Bruce. How are you doing? Good to see you, Greg. I'm doing really good today. Well, it's good to see you, and we're playing formality here, but I've known Bruce for at least 15 years, uh, introduced to me through Gary Malkin, for many of you who know him, and I'm going to let you know a bit about Bruce. He's been called the Renaissance Man because of his four-decade career as a singer, actor, dancer, publisher, author, marketing executive, CEO, board member, consultant, mentor, and coach for leaders in diverse fields. Uh, he now brings his expertise and passage for Renaissance living and working to a select group of clients each year. His diverse and fascinating background leading successful companies and performing for large audiences blends beautifully to create powerful, creatively rich and results-driven approach with all those that he chooses to work with. Music, dance, meditation, and fun will definitely be involved. Um, so if you want to know more about Bruce, because he's got a very, very long bio, I'm going to say go to Bruce Cryer, C-R-Y-E-R dot -E com to learn more about him. And in the process, he said he was an author. We're going to be speaking about a book that he wrote back in 2000, but then got reprinted a couple of times, one in 2008. And the book is as timely today as it was in 2008. So for all of you, um, Bruce was the former CEO of HeartMath Inc. Uh, we will put a link to that on the blog so that you know who HeartMath is. Many of you who are listening already know who HeartMath is, uh, but he was the CEO of the company. So Bruce, if you would tell the listeners a bit about your history with HeartMath, which I think is important, and why you and Dr. Childry wrote from chaos to coherence. And again, for my listeners, we'll put a link to the book. You can get it on Amazon for $17.99 and we'll have a link uh, to the book up there. Great, Greg. Well, um, HeartMath began in 1991 as a nonprofit research institute. Uh, the founder is a man named Doc Childry, who I met in 1980. So 11 years before HeartMath officially began as an organization, I met him um, in California where I was living at the time. I was very intrigued with his ideas of, of humanity and the heart and whatnot, um, but didn't know there was a, an organization he was thinking of, of establishing at some point. I lost track of, the, of him as you did back in those days when there was no email, no cell phones, no text messages, no, <laughs> no nothing. It's hard to believe that Vera existed. So he was just gone for like six years. And uh, I yeah, hadn't but taken we have that. our own GPS system. We knew how to find him again. You know, it was, you know what I mean? It was okay. kind of like, well, oh, I know where this person would hang out. He'll be over here at this coffee shop. <laughs> All I knew is somewhere in North Carolina is where he lived. So that wasn't terribly helpful to me. Yeah. I was not, I was nowhere near North Carolina. Yeah. But at any rate, uh, he had been working for years. Um, on, on himself and then with a small group of people developing ideas about the heart and had 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 an intention at a certain point to establish an institute all around the study of the heart. 
And uh, for, fortunately for me, the town I was living in, in, in the Bay Area of Northern California, was the town he wanted to start the organization in. So I, I already lived there. Yay on me. And there were a number of others of us in the original starting uh, family. Was that group. Santa Cruz? Uh, Santa Cruz Mountains. Uh, Santa the town Cruz was is a little town where HeartMath is still based called Boulder Creek, California. Yep, yep, yep I know it well. Yeah. Yeah, gorgeous paradise kind of place in redwood forests and meandering rivers and only 30 minutes from the pacific ocean so it's a a, a unique and wonderful place to live as i did for a long time but the, the vision of heart math back then was that we wanted to use mainstream science to validate theories about human the human condition that had been known for centuries millennia by religious systems chinese medicine ayurveda uh, your spiritual systems had revered the heart in every ancient system. It was only in the last 150 years that the me the, me the, me the, me the mechanists, the industrialists, the uh, the reductionists of the of Europe decided everything's just a machine, a fantastical machine, and the heart's nothing more than a pump, a fantastical pump at that. But that was it, and so we felt there was this huge disconnect in humanity, knowing intuitively the heart was essential not just because it was a pump and yet science coming along and saying, it's just a pump. Don't give, don't the, the ancients were, were cute. <laughs> they were, we, we can, we can revere some of what they said, but they clearly did. They clearly got it wrong when it came to the heart. So that was sort of the attitude in science. And we knew that was wrong. <laughs> we just knew, you know, you, when you, when you, when you're not putting your heart in your job, you don't do well. When you're not putting your heart into a relationship, you're not, you don't do well. When you're, you're as a, as a kid, your parents say, Hey, Bruce, go back out there and just sing with your heart this time. They didn't mean sing with your pump as opposed to my kneecap. You know, right. they meant the, the essence of me, the, the courage of me, the strength, the beauty of me, you know? So we knew there was something really off, but we also knew if we didn't take a mainstream scientific approach to this, we would have no more credibility than every other self-help system coming out of California, which like the world needed another one. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so mainstream science was the route and that was not easy, but we were getting quite successful through the decade of the nineties. So the intention was to be able to use mainstream science to validate kind of ancient spiritual principles. Um, at the same time, develop very simple techniques that weren't about spirituality, but could help a single mother who's dealing with how do you do rent and work in two jobs and caring for the two kids? What, how can you help that person uh, deal with the stress of their life and, and live from the heart with that, that sounding just idealistic or poetic? And so simple, practical tools that anyone could use and apply in their, in their world without it conflicting with whatever their beliefs about spirituality or religion or, or non-religion they may have. So this was just a, as Doc, I used to love the phrase, Heart math is a friendly facilitator. If you're an well, atheist, you, you're going to... You tried to take more of a, um, I don't want to pay, neutral approach, even though, you know, it, 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 there is a lot of spirituality in this. There's a lot of science in it. There's a lot of, as you call it, mind, body, or, or mind, gut, and heart, right? Um, and, you know, in this book, you're bringing about coherence out of what increasingly seems, what I'm going to say, it seems crazy chaotic times right now. You know, it's like this world since 2008 for you and I and everybody else in it um, has changed and it will continue to change. And it will be about our ability to thrive during this constant change. 
And we know that all can affect our heart. It affects our heart, it affects our gut, it affects our mind, it affects our emotions. But it, it doesn't seem like, as I said, a lot has changed. You wrote this book and they look at it and the things you were writing about are things that are still happening today. So what in your mind has changed or in your estimation about the way we view healthy, high-performing individuals? Now, for anybody out there listening, you could say, oh, well, that's only for an executive. No, that's for everybody. We want everybody to be a healthy, high-performing individual. Um, and we want the organizations in which you work to be healthy and high-performing organizations. And what is the new research? Because Bruce didn't just stay stagnant. Uh, he evolved, too, since 2008. May not have been 100% with heart math, but you really have evolved a lot. What would you want to tell the listeners about um, from chaos to coherence? Wow, uh, that's a great question. That's, a, that's also a, a big question. Um, well, the book was written at a time when, as you, as you say, uh, things were highly stressful, partly because the internet was still relatively new. Right. So tremendous disruption was happening. Uh, it was only about a year or so after the book was first published that the dot-com meltdown happened, which, me which meant for those of you really young listening, you know, there had been this explosion of all everybody going going online, web companies galore being built, and we didn't really know what the business was going to be like. And it was kind of a crazy period, but things were expl exploding and expanding in ways you couldn't have predicted. Suddenly, email was a regular thing, let alone having a website. Well, what do you mean you don't have a website? What, what are you talking about? There, of course, you have to have a website. Ten years earlier, you never even heard of the term website. And so things were were rapidly changing. And uh, it was around that same time that the World Health Organization uh, declared that stress had become a global epidemic. And that was in 1991, a global epidemic. It was, it was so out of control that we, we started learning words like karoshi, which meant death by overwork and stories of, of, of Japanese middle-level mid managers or workers literally dying at their desk. They couldn't quit. They couldn't go home until the, the boss went home. If the boss didn't go home to midnight, some were actually dying at their at their desk, and it was just like horrific sounding stuff. And and then of course we went through the two thousand eight the subprime home meltdown. That was a whole nother huge inflection point for business. But I think what we see today, which is so interesting, is we now have an entire generation Gen Zs who grew up knowing the world of a smartphone, grew up with apps, grew up with social media as the way that they did business. And I think one of the biggest changes now, not just about Gen Z, but about how our how our lifestyle has changed. Now, of course, I'm on meetings on Zoom way, way, way more often than I am meeting in person. The number of times I've seen people keep their screen off, the screen their keep their camera off the entire time. So in that meeting, they can be multitasking. And that wasn't nearly as easy in the old days when you were always in person. You you would you'd get called out like Greg, can you please put your computer down? You know, we need to stay focused here in the meeting. Well, now we're multitasking all the time and the attention spans are shorter and shorter and shorter. And so now 12 second video is, is considered, that's great content. What can you give to me in 12 seconds? You know, and I used to do two day, when that book was published, we were doing two day retreats on a regular basis. And it's it's kind of crazy. And I think the the the, the level of very high speed, superficial dealing with things 
is at an all-time high. And that's incredibly unsatisfying when you're only at this level, you know, you know all the well, time. Would, would you so, say, would you say this feels more like, you know, when the internet came along, these are Greg's voice and words, but we had a lot of breadth because we could reach a lot of people through our website and our emails and every, right. everything else. But we kind of seem to have lost depth, meaning those personal relationships. So, you know, talk about isolation. I mean, one of the biggest challenges as we went through COVID, you, you hadn't even mentioned COVID yet, but I'm going to bring it up, was the fact that, you know, we've all spent like a two and a half year period here uh, hibernating behind these screens, this Zoom really didn't even exist very big until, you know, like the pandemic came along and then it just escalated so uh, incredible. Um, you know, it, it is a different world in that respect. And so I'd like for you to address as it relates to the heart, because there are lots of studies what isolation is doing. Um, and the fact that people aren't making as many deep, meaningful connections. Well, I think one of the most profound um, markers of how they, our attitudes have shifted, and it's, and it's good, is that the term mental health has lost a lot of its stigma. It's like all of a sudden you're, you're, you're taking a mental health day. That's a sign that you're smart. All of a sudden, organizations, hospitals, corporations are dealing with mental health, not as, for the people that are extreme or extremely like almost suicidal, but for the average person who, thanks to COVID, thanks to the, the recession and, and uh, high inflation, thanks to all the, the climate change, the, the, the severity of storms, thanks to wars, thanks to having every day now, let, let's shoot down something from the sky. You know, something the Chinese are sending. Like every day, we're shooting them down now. Like, what's going on? It, are we it, certain it, those aren't UFOs? <laughs> whatever they are, we're shooting them down. Yeah, basis. we're shooting them down. <laughs> I'm not sure which is worse, a UFO or a, or a Chinese spy, spy yeah, balloon. Yeah. Even the term, a Chinese spy balloon, it sounds kind of like a cartoon. Yes, Chinese it does. Spy yeah, it does sound that way. <laughs> But at the essence of all this, because it does seem chaotic to so many people who maybe the coping mechanisms within inside them have not developed, you know, it's not like they re they intentionally retarded, but they had no way to really kind of figure it out and navigate. And so, you know, we talk about this, um, these gaps between the classes the uneducated or less educated, the very well-educated. Um, what in your framework do you believe could be done to close that gap and to close this divisive gap that exists not only politically, but um, uh, um, racially? Um, you know, I didn't really think, of course, I'm sitting out here in California in kind of a bubble sometimes, that this racial division was so uh, massive. And uh, it still seems to be a real challenge. Uh, that's for sure. And I think with every new case of, of uh, too often it's a, an innocent or a unarmed black man being mowed down by police and it's, yeah. that type of thing has happened so many times arrested for being black 
you know, that, that expression, which every black child has heard because they, they know that is absolutely possible that you could be walking down the street. Uh, you could be driving your car with nothing going on and arrested while being for being black, you know? Right. And so I think it, all these cases um, have reminded us just how deep seated so much of these habits and attitudes really are. And I mean, I, I feel like I, I grew up in a very progressive home. We were, my father was a liberal Republican at a time such a thing actually existed. Yeah. And he was socially very, socially very progressive, but economically conservative. So he's all for government restraint and fiscal restraint, but he was all about all people. We're, we're all, we're all family here, not just, not just whites. So I, I grew up in, in believing that and, and, and aspiring to, to be an example of that in my life. And yet from time to time, I still find myself, you know, if I see a, a young black guy in a hood, you know, kind of walking a certain way, like a little bit scared, like automatically assuming he's he's out to get me instead of he may have, he may have lost his grandmother and his hood's up because he's 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 grieving. I mean, you don't know. You have no idea. So I think we 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 all, even those of us raised believing we were not like all the other um, racists. Um, we have we have habits, we have underlying um, beliefs that c- can kind of rear their head from time to time, too. So I think it's a, it's a big issue I, at the core of the heart math work and something that, as you mentioned, I, I did leave as, as CEO back in 2011 and um, have always stayed connected. And I teach about it all the time and I'm interviewed about it all the time, as I am again today. But at the core of heart math is this belief that love is the most important force in, in the universe. And yeah. we just wanted to try to prove that out scientifically, so we didn't just sound sound like somebody on their on their little soapbox in in, in Central Park. Here you, you know, we're, no, no, this there's this grounded knowledge about why this is true. I think, I think love is. I think love is a great word, but I also believe compassion is a, is a maybe more encompassing word too, because you know, if we're going to heal the challenges and ills of the world. It's going to require that people learn how to develop more compassion. And I think heart math actually gives us a way to do that. And, you know, you mentioned that our knowledge of human intelligence continues to deepen the fact that intelligence is distributed throughout the human system. Now, here's where this kind of shifts for my listeners. Um, And that the heart is the intelligent system profoundly affecting the brain processes. Now, okay, you're saying it reverse to what many people believe. Many people believe that it's the brain that's affecting the heart, not the heart that's affecting the brain. Speak with the listeners about this connection and what the studies of heart math reveal about the mind, the gut, and the heart, the interconnectedness. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, just to, to acknowledge, I. I appreciate you making the distinction of compassion, not just love. And I was about to say that actually, because love is the is the ultimate force. But to me, there are there are hues of love, and compassion is is extremely important, and 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 is absolutely at the core of the heart math uh, system. And the, as we the do math. this podcast on Valentine's Day, <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so you no, and I are doing this podcast on the right day. <laughs> we are. Indeed. Indeed. So, yeah, the the whole notion of of the heart's centrality to the system, as as I mentioned earlier, it's revered as the core of us uh, in every major culture of the world, every every spiritual system, religious system. 
but especially in the West, especially in the last hundred years or so, the premise, the, pr the primacy of the brain has become the thing, right? And we're all completely enamored with the brain because it is an incredible computer. It's even to call it a computer is is dissing it because <laughs> it's so much more advanced than any possible computer that, that humans could ever build. As much as we want to romanticize how amazing AI is, it's still not anything close to what the human brain is capable of. But yeah, it, it's the, the old model we had of intelligence was smart computer, like the brain was the mainframe and the rest of the body was kind of dumb, just right. following commands of the body. Just like 40 years ago, smart the, the mainframe computer was the only thing smart about an IT system and that lived in the basement of the company. And then on your desk, you just had terminals that could access certain bits of information from that mainframe. But it was the mainframe that was smart. The terminals were just TV screens. Gradually, intelligent, the, 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 the research into intelligence revealed a, a gigantic nervous system called the gut brain in the gut, 100 million or so neurons in constant dialogue between the, the gut, uh, intestinal tract, and the brain upstairs. And then in the early 90s, another nervous system was discovered in the heart, uh, having tens of thousands of what are called sensory neurites, neurons, cardiac neurons in the heart, processing information locally for the heart. A little brain, it, it qualifies as a, a little brain managing the affairs of the heart. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that in a romantic sense, in a biological sense. And then when when it was when the pathways of information were were looked at carefully, it was discovered that the heart is sending four times more information north to the brain than the brain is sending down to the heart, because the heart is doing all kinds of things. It's processing information. It's producing electrical signal. It's a sensory system, uh, uh, responding to sensory uh, information from the environment. That could be smells, temperature, light, all kinds of things getting registered in the heart. Heart's also a hormonal gland. We've heard a lot over the last decade or so about oxytocin, also known as the love hormone or the, the mothering hormone. Guess where that's produced? Not only the brain, produced the in the heart. Mm -hmm. So suddenly over the, la the last 30 years, the heart sort of began to come out of its shell <laughs> in our awareness. Like, oh my God, this is an incredible organ. This is not just a pump. Those, those, those doctors that wanted to dump, dump everything down to just a machine, like the humans being is just a machine. Sorry, that analogy is just not working. And then, of course, it was discovered that intelligence of all kinds exists all through the body. And even memories aren't just the storing of memories doesn't happen just in the, in the brain. Like we want to neatly believe, oh, that's the section of the brain where you store memories. And that's, you know, it, when, when heart transplants started happening and doctors started reporting more and more and more and more, and these are all well-documented examples in, in many, many books and, and articles that when you get a transplanted heart for a period of time, could even be years, some of the memories of the donor come into the recipient. Mm -hmm. So wild stories have, have emerged where the actual memories have come over. And suddenly that person who loved Big Macs and, and, and a Slurpee as their favorite food, has a craving for wine and and oysters. And like, what you want? What, honey? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, we're going to make, no, no. I feel like white wine and have a filet mignon. What? <laughs> and then they track it down, and the donor loved that, and they wanted. Oh, let's, let's hear some classical music. Classical music. What about um, 
Johnny rock Cash. That's what rock and roll. To. Yeah. What well, you know, it all makes sense because this web of uh, cells and intelligence that are part of our body are all interrelated. And you referred to it yeah. at HeartMath as the inner quality management. You know, I wanted to kind of make sure we speak about that. And, and it always, it comes down to this inner quality that we have. What would you, or can you address these four interdependent and integrated dynamic, what you re referred at HeartMath to IQM? And why it's the cornerstone for this, what's what you refer to in the book again is internal self-management, right? Um, because look, we we perceive things through our eyes and our retina, we feel things, we taste things, we take these in through all these various senses. And the sensory uh can be an overload when we're when we get stressed, right? Um, and we don't know how to like maybe deal with it. I know that there are days that I get there. Like I'm like, oh my God, one more thing. Um, I don't really need one more thing. So I I encourage you to share with our listeners this inner quality management and the four dynamics. Yeah, sure. Well, it's it's something that we've used a lot for, for many years now is in working with organizations who are intent to you know, become more profitable and intent, intent to give to new tools to their employees to work more efficiently and work more effectively. And more and more, that has also meant you've got to, you can't ignore the health of the, of the individual employee. This is where COVID's done us a big favor. Like I said earlier, mental health has come out of the, 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 the dungeon. It's not just a term for the people who can't hack it. This is now everybody. This is now major Olympic athletes saying, I can't compete in the Olympics and I'm stepping down from my mental health. World, world champion tennis players saying the same, actors saying the same, acknowledging I'm overloaded. I can't, I can't go on like this. I have to stop and take care of myself. And luckily that has seeped into corporations and realizing, well, we all went through COVID together, all 8 billion of us. So it's no wonder that a lot of us would be feeling pretty freaking overwhelmed. And some of us are excited to be going back in the office and not a lot, and, and others are not. You know, that's overwhelming. And now I got to go back. Now I got to commute every day on top of everything else. So this overwhelm is significant. And so we've always believed that for an, any organization to get healthier long term, you have to focus on the individual health of the individual uh, and the individual coherence, the term HeartMath has loved and has used for almost 30 years now. The, the coherence of the individual, the degree to which that person feels aligned between their mind, their emotions, why they're even at work, why, why they're even doing the job they have, the degree to which you feel aligned is, is a, a lot about this first dynamic we call internal self-management. So we're saying to get to be effective in your job, to, for a leader to say, for my team to be effective, for my company to be effective, my hospital to be effective, we've got to make sure my team... Our front, our front people have the tools to manage themselves in these crazy and challenging times. So that's a set of techniques and scientific research comprising that module we call inter internal self-management. In every dynamic of any of, of life today, communication is, is, is more challenging than ever. I have an, any number of friends who prefer to do only texting. They don't even, they say, I don't speak on the phone. I don't use the phone. I you don't speak on the phone like ever. Oh, no, no, I, I don't. I, I prefer texting. I prefer 
to feeling the depth out of a text i'm thinking wow that is like upside down world compared yeah. to me to, to me got to be on the yeah. or, or i can't the text is just feels so inadequate but the point is it is more challenging than ever for communication to be coherent and so we, we our view is that just as an individual needs to feel aligned in order to be authentic and be the most effective version they can be of themselves. You've got to bring that to every conversation as well. So skills to be in a coherent enough state, you can truly listen, which is why the constant multitasking that everybody, not everybody, that so many people are doing these days is so inefficient. I was in a meeting that long ago where I was talking about a decision that was made in a meeting with me, myself and two other people. And it was it was a maybe 15 minute conversation in that meeting. And one person denied we'd even ever talked about that, let alone have we come to a decision. And I thought, oh, my God. I mean, I remember at the time thinking I, I wasn't sure she was really in the conversation. She would she seemed to be typing and looking kind of away from her camera most of the time. But sure enough, she hadn't been present at all. She completely missed 15 minutes of, of a conversation while seemingly being there. So that's, that's super incoherent communication that had just that gap in her had significant consequences for the organization that she had no memory of that even happening. <laughs> That's just one tiny example. Just one tiny example of the incoherence that goes on and what's more challenging than ever because we're in a world of 12, 12 second videos now. And so if it can't be said super quick in, in chat shorthand, yeah, I don't have time for it is the attitude. And so that leads to mistakes, that leads to misunderstandings, that leads to hard feelings. And so coherent communication is a whole module of kind of retraining ourselves to these relationships at work, let alone at home, are meaningful to, to different degrees. Well, when at you work, look at you look, Bruce, kind of on the if somebody's working in the corporate world or they're working for themselves, it doesn't matter, but they're working and then they have their personal life and they look at the quote demands they put on themselves because they're an achiever you know what i find is you know between balancing from everything from balancing the checkbook to balancing the kids to balancing the work uh the reason i use three balancings in that is because the body itself this this mind body spirit um wants to seek more homeostasis. I for I find more people who are out of balance. You know, we used to call it work-life balance, right? Wasn't that long ago. Now it's not really being referred to as much as work-life balance. There's a there's a new term today. It's like get in touch with your <laughs> your emotions. What would you say? Because you state putting the emphasis on learning how to deal effectively with workplace and personal problems will create more coherence in the individual, okay? You state that coherence is efficiency in action. I agree. If you would speak to the listeners about the importance of coherence and how this affects us mentally, emotionally, spiritually, um, because you, know, you, you are saying, hey, if this imbalance happens to be chaos, and I'm for many people listening, they have plenty of days of chaos, right? And yep. when they come home at night, they're hoping for this refuge of some way to balance, to bring back some peace and harmony and, and whatever. And then to sleep, 
so that they can <laughs> so that they can wake up the next day and do it all over again, right? Um, so address the coherence thing as it relates to that. Well, first of all, just to give a little bit of a definition, um, coherence in physics is a word that describes how a laser can take a, a light source and turn it into a beam that is incredibly tiny and incredibly precise enough to repair a retina of your eye. So that's coherent light. So the, the light that em emits from a laser, the particles and, and, and waves are completely coherent. They're completely lined up. There's nothing distracted. There's nothing disrupted or disordered about that light source. So it's incredibly focused. A regular light, like a, there's a light you know, illuminating me and in the room, all of these are considered incoherent light. So if physicists would look at the light itself, it comes out and it's kind of bouncing into each other. It's not focused. It does exactly what it's supposed to do, which is not to try to repair retinas, <laughs> just illuminate the room. That's that's fine. That's right. your job. Just illuminate the room. To be a to be a retina repairer, that's a whole nother qualification. That's a, a lot of extra years and a lot of extra ability to focus. So we start looking at human physiology and emotional states and hormonal and immune system, all these systems, and realize the coherence analogy was an excellent one to apply to us as, as people, that we are capable of being in a coherent state. And psychologists like to call that flow, mm -hmm. where you're in this beautiful flow state. Everything is just kind of in a flow and it feels super efficient. Time seems to stretch out like that was three hours. That's crazy. It seemed like 20 minutes and, but you're also very effective and efficient and athletes when they're in a zone. I'm a Bay area guy, huge fan of Steph Curry, that guy, you know, it's just like, how, how is he able to do this? But he is so in a coherent state that he pulls off the most miraculous moves and shots, you know, just like, just like effortless. It's not, doesn't look like it's the hard work for him. And like, how is this humanly possible? But that's high le level of coherence. So our analogy is that most of us are walking around not like that. We're not operating like lasers. We're we're lighting a room. That's okay. That's better than nothing. We're not completely all the all the lights are turned out, but we're not even close to what we could be. And we've all had those moments when we were in the zone. We were in a flow state. And so the work of hard math was to say that's a physiologically possible state to achieve. It's not that it it takes practice and it takes routine. And it's not well, just you know, about not to interrupt you, but I've had Stephen Kotler on here so many times, the guy that founded Flow Genome Project and has written all kinds of books on flow and wonderful guy. But, you know, I remember what he said. And while you're speaking right now, it, it always pops up. You know, he, he talks about the elements associated around getting into a state of flow because people are trying to hack flow. So he calls it hacking flow. But how, can you really hack flow? Um, so people use ayahuasca to hack flow. <laughs> they use all kinds of things to try and get to this flow state. But one of the things he said that I think is important here is he said, focus is for free. Purpose, right? And so he has a whole list of things that really help your goals, your mission, all the things that you're trying to achieve. But when you have those in a line, the focus literally comes in. 
And I think many people out there, and this, this also to relates to heart math, the reason that they feel like they're so chaotic and me included is if you're really curious, which I am, and then you start all these projects and you get five or six different projects going because you're very curious and you're in, it's good to be curious. Um, the yep. downfall of curiosity is the loss of focus. Okay. The, but until you find something you're curious about that you're very passionate about, that you have a purpose aligned with, that you know where you're headed, that you define some goals in, it's very challenging. So if you would maybe address that, because I think at the heart of much of this is we probably got a lot of people out there listening today that are super curious. Uh, they might have five or six things going and they're like juggling plates. Um, and to get to that focus, they can't get to that focus because they've got to spread too much energy in between four or five different things. Any comment on that? <laughs> I'm sorry, I wasn't really paying attention. I, my mind was drifting a lot of places. What was the point again? I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Sometimes my questions, sometimes my questions are comments, but the statement from Stephen again, no, no, just, you got no, 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 no. I was joking, Greg. I was joking, yeah. Greg. That okay. was a, that was a play on me talking about how I can't keep my mind focused. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about focus. That was a joke. I got you. I got you. That one. Um, yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great question. It's one I I deal with all the time too, and. Um, and one, one quick story to illustrate, I was told several years ago, about six, six, seven years ago, I had my human design chart done, which mm -hmm. I won't go into what all that means, but it sounds like you're somewhat familiar. And I'm I very familiar. <laughs> met with this gentleman and he, and he was telling me about my chart and he said, and he's showing me this, this chart, which was meaningless to me and all these numbers and symbols and all that stuff. I didn't know what any of it meant. And he said, just look at it here. You're the most open person I've ever seen. I said, okay, what is, what is that? Is that good? Is that bad? And he's pointing out all these places where most people would have a certain way they would have to handle something. He said, you're wide open there. Look at this one right here. So most people would have blah, 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 blah. He said, you are so open. And I said, okay, that, that makes sense to me. I, I do feel like I'm extremely open. I'm very curious and I, I'm not afraid to be curious. I'm not afraid to explore uh, something that has has some some level of interest for me and if you look at my career it's all over the place I started out as a musical theater guy in New York City and and now for the last 25 years I've been teaching on stress and performance and creativity at Stanford doesn't sound that linked right you know wrote, wrote an article on executive health and stress for Harvard Business Review Is, that didn't sound that connected <laughs> you know so <laughs> games kind of all it seems to others is kind of all over the place and to me, there is a thread of all of it. I was all of it was related to the human, the human condition, and how we can improve ourselves as as humans. And I got a chance to exp, exp, explore that side of myself as an actor. But I think um, a, a challenge today for people who are genuinely curious is to not just let that turn into mind fascination with, as my friend, as our friend Gary often refers to as the next shiny object. You know, only having interest long enough. Be, with with something until the next shiny object comes along oh let's check this one out over here so it can it, what you refer the downside of what you're talking about is is a dilettantism that it just can't ever land on one thing but i think i think there's a it, it's very important as i've grown spiritually as i've just gone through more and more life the the importance of being open that doesn't mean just buying everything either but it, it means 
receiving information from all kinds of sources, including weird ones that you can't explain. Like, where did that thought come from? And being open to maybe there's truth in that. Maybe that voice, I don't, I don't hear voices. Maybe that voice that I heard had something I really need to pay attention to. And, but I, but guided with that is because of the nature of our society of, of kind of tossing us around, you know, and we, we get lost in scrolling on Instagram or lost on TikTok. I don't use TikTok or lost doing whatever, that if we don't have a core of some kind of daily practices, rituals that are anchoring us back to just us without trying to do anything, but just us, the being that is trying to grow and evolve. I am a curious person. I will always be that way. That's going to help keep me young. Yeah, I am yeah. a person. I'm always going to be that way. That's going to keep <laughs> me young. But if, if I don't meditate in the morning, if I don't do practices to quieten that part of me that can get pulled into this and pulled into that and thinking, man, for your age, you're you're awfully cool with, with today's culture. I say, yeah, because I'm curious. And there's a lot of good stuff out there. There's a lot of BS too, of course, but I stay curious. Yeah. So, but but the curiosity and, and all that energy without a core to help sort it out and help get the guidance of, well, what, what are, of all these possibilities makes the most sense for me at this stage of my life. Well, and I that's what I I think meditation, yoga, gratefulness practice, all there's a lot of things you can do, but all of those are grounding practices to keep Bruce and Greg where they need to be. You know, I, I find a lot of similarities and 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 who we are as individuals. Um, exactly. And you know, you, part of the book addresses this freeze frame technique, and you it was developed while at um, uh, HeartMath. Tell the listeners uh, what it is and give us an example of how it can be used daily to help us control stressful issues in our life. Because, you know, the listeners right now have been hearing us talk. They're still dealing with their shit. And they're saying, well, if you have something for me to ground, give me something that will ground me. <laughs> and I guess free frame would be it, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, freeze frame, as the name implies, is this a stopping of the action. So part of the idea we, we realized in, in trying to help people deal with stress is the, the problem with stress is the reaction you're having to it. The, the, the stressor is, could stress you out, might not stress somebody else out. The issue is your, is your reaction to it. Mm -hmm. So with the idea of freeze frame, our belief was if you can stop yourself enough to recognize what you're feeling right now. Like I'm pissed off right now. I'm super freaked out right now. I'm really worried right now. Acknowledge the stress, recognize the stressful feeling and then take some action. Like imagine you could stop it and just pause it and then step back and then you, you take some breaths. And it, with the heart math practice, it's always breathing as though you could breathe through your heart. And we'd found out through our research that around a 10 second rhythm, around five seconds as you breathe in, and around five seconds as you breathe out is an optimal rhythm for your body. Your body loves that rhythm. It's really comfortable. If you're older, that may be a little too slow. Four and four is fine. Three and three is fine. But the idea is to regulate your breath. So you're drawing it in through the heart and then letting it go out through the heart. And this action of just stopping and starting to breathe is, has started to already sort of neutralize what the reaction that you just had. And then, so our view is you, you got to kind of stop. You got to take some action here. You got to have enough awareness in the moment, or even if it's after the fact, to stop, stop the reaction, pause, 
breathe through the heart, and then try to find any positive feeling, gratitude, compassion, fun, um, joy, peacefulness, any anyone, which can shift your state even more so out of the reaction. And then from that standpoint, and this all happens pretty quickly as you, as you practice this, this is not a drawn out you know, five minute process or something. Right. Then, then you, you allow your, your, your mind to kind of scan, well, what are some options here? <laughs> oh, I need to talk to this person. We need to have an actual conversation, not because we're, we're just screaming at each other right now. Or, um, you know, what, wow, I'm doing something that's, that keeps irritating this other person. I need to look at myself right now. I need to, you know, so the process of, first of all, recognizing the stressful feeling you're having and, and being honest about what I'm, what are you feeling right now? I'm, I'm feeling, this is very unfair. I'm feeling very irritated. Then saying, okay, breathe right now, right now, breathe. Oh, and by the way, part of the heart math research is in that moment that you're feeling a stress reaction. A research study in the early nineties that somebody else did, not even heart math, showed that that reaction is biochemically produces a chain reaction of 1400 biochemical events just from that initial moment of I'm, I'm, I'm pissed off I'm worried I'm freaked whatever it is so that's what you're stopping <laughs> you're saying well, I, I, I got- also know that you know as a result of us getting in that state of anger frustration rage you know we do stupid things right we can do stupid things we'll say things we may act inappropriately. We may do all kinds of things, which could have some long-term lasting effects on us as individuals. Uh, and I think the freeze frame technique, and for all of you, definitely look it up. Just type it in Google. You're going to find it. You, you can also reference it in this book. Uh, the technique is outlined. Uh, Bruce just outlined it really well. Um, it's more than just taking a deep breath, as Bruce is explaining. Um, because it's also repositioning yourself as to what, how you could respond uh, or take some action, right? Um, and, and that's one of the keys here. Um, but again, from chaos to co- coherence, the coherence is really going to be brought about by you taking these actions with freeze frame and other tools you can use, whether it's meditation or yoga or freeze frame or or, or heart rate variability, looking at it on your phone, whatever, so that you can actually measure what's going on and really determine what you're doing to yourself. I remember going way back, I was having anxiety attacks that were very debilitating and I ended up going to Scripps Clinic in La Jolla and they put electrodes on my head and I always thought it was something outside myself that was causing it until I actually saw the brain waves being measured about what I was doing to myself. And I think what this allows you to do is take a deep look at what you're doing to yourself. Nobody outside of you did this. The person who made the, created the angry remark, it was your reaction to that angry m- remark that got you upset. You know, you exactly. have to let go of that. Um, and that being said, um, I want to talk about two more things before we wrap up this interview. And one is this thing called perception loop and how people in life that have learned how to successfully manage their emotions, rea- uh, uh, reactiveness can neutralize and transform the negative emotions. Cause that's exactly what we're talking about. Negative emotions and this perception loop. 
How do we rewire, rewire our brains to better manage stress? Well, one of the key- You are humble. <laughs> a humble question. Yeah, how do we rewire our brains? Yeah, that's, that's a small question. I can answer that in five words. Um, no, I can't. Yeah, you can. Freeze frame. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, with a lot of practice, that was six words. Um, the one important thing for people to understand. Um, so while we said earlier, the heart is sending way more information north to the brain than the other way around. That's not to say the brain isn't still... <laughs> managing a massive amount of the of the body that's its job and one of the key ways it does that is uh, through the autonomic nervous system also called ans autonomic meaning automatic and so the the brain has the system that can regulate heart rate it can control respiration it can control secretions in your gi tract it can control basically 90 percent of the processes in your body that's what the autonomic system does and you never have to consciously think about it. So the autonomic system, autonomic nervous system is literally your subconscious mind. Right. So when we have a, any kind of trauma, um, I, I had no abuse as a child. I had a few things happen to me as a child, but not a, abuse by a, a human. Um, those things get stored and they get stored in the memory associated with the subconscious the autonomic system which is which is designed to uh, prevent um, death from happening you know the fight flight response is is to protect you um however every time we are traumatized by anything even even a, a, a fear with no justification whatsoever, it's still stored unless it somehow gets released. That chemical reaction that was so intense in our body does get stored, doesn't just evaporate, unfortunately. And so that's why trauma is so hard to, to, to get through. And But when we start to realize, wait a minute, this is actually our subconscious mind. So that's still the mind. And so we have to build new circuitry this is the work of heart math but also people like dr joe dispenza that we have to build kind of the positive neural circuitry of enough positive experiences of gratitude of appreciation of joy to help counteract the the negative loop the perception loop that it's easy to get stuck in because if we just have something that vaguely reminds us of that trauma that happened five or 10 or 15 years ago, there we go, getting triggered again. There's the 1400 biochemical responses again. Our body is being flooded in the biochemistry of fight, flight. This is a danger to my existence, even though it was an email only. Right. But we're then living with the, the consequences of that. And that colors our reaction to the next event that happens. And we bring that that into the next meeting that we're about to have. And then something happens in the meeting and we're extra angry because we never dealt with the thing that happened in the phone call before the meeting. And so it becomes this loop where we stay stuck feeling victimized by that guy and that guy and her and oh, and my, and, oh, and my father, oh my God. You know, so all these things keep keeping us locked over there in, in that negative cycle. Well, and it escalates. But in order to get out of that, you need to you need to have a way of stopping that that picture. That's what freeze frame is designed to do. So we can start to build the new habits, the new circuitry of hopefulness, of being grateful for all the good things you do have in your life, in spite of that one awful person who who is the bane of your existence. Yeah, it, you you have a tendency, and I know I've done this. Everybody out there listening has done it 
um, you, you start to focus on one small little thing that can escalate into something very large because it now is dominating your whole system because you have a belief that it's not right or something is you, you can't justify it because your systems don't know how to justify it. it's kind of the best way I would say that and you allow that to uh, manifest itself into a chaos not coherence chaos because if you address it and you address it correctly through um, coherence with focus and get it resolved and get it out of the way, it doesn't dominate the mind for more and more stress. And I think that's what you, you know, when you look at this book, this is what you do. Um, look, let's wrap up the interview, leave the listeners with some words and tips of uh, wisdom and advice from you from chaos to coherence. What could they immediately apply to their lives to make this journey that you and I have been talking about from chaos to coherence? Um, I, I don't want to use the word simpler, but um, make it a learning experience that can be repeated over and over and over again so that they don't have to go down um, the what I want to call the challenging path. We, we've already got enough challenges in our lives. <laughs> so what would you, what three tips would you give our listeners as we wrap up this interview? Uh, sure. Thank you for that question. Well, first of all, I would come back to that brief technique that we did earlier, that the simple practice of bringing one's attention to the area of your heart and just breathing. That can happen during a phone call. That can happen in the five minutes before you're about to start your next meeting that can be happen that can happen when you step outside and oh my god feel that sunshine and instead of just sitting there breathe in and out for five seconds each way science determined research determined that that rhythm it's called respiratory sinus arrhythmia is optimal for the human system it's not just something heart, heart met arbitrarily said oh why don't you try five seconds in five seconds out <laughs> kind of works for us this is based on human physiology so that practice of bringing the attention to the heart and then breathing gently in and out through the heart is very calming and it can dissipate those 1400 biochemicals quite a lot if people just do that and walk back inside like wow i feel a whole lot better now that hasn't solved the fact that you're still a reactive person reacting maybe too much but it's it's starting to rebuild new circuitry i can take charge of this i don't have to be victimized by the events of my day so that's number one the Heart math calls it heart-focused breathing. Just bring the attention there. Try to hold the attention there. And then we know that that does things biochemically to the heart to draw attention to it as drawing attention to any part of your body would also do. So that's number one. Um, secondly, I would say, um, like I, I have a, a line that I that I use called, there, there can never be too much peace and love in a world starving for both. And it's my opinion in life and my mission in life to be putting out as much peace and be loving as much as I possibly can. And that's sometimes that means compassion. So somebody was fired today at the university where I work and it was somebody that was not, not a friend to me. Um, I don't feel joy today. I'm relieved uh, that I don't have that in my, uh, in my way anymore, but I wonder what she's going through. I wonder what her life is, is, is going to be like 
no one wants to be terminated. No one wants that to have happen. So I, instead of feeling joy that that happened, I felt like compassion for what's what does this now mean for for her and her family, et cetera. And so um, I think the the ability to say I want to try to put love out even though it's hard. I want to feel compassion even though I've I felt unjustly affected by that person for for X reason or for X period of time. We all have our reasons for not being the highest version of ourselves. But if we try to do the good uh, act, be kind when it's not easy to, be loving when it's hard, be compassionate when you feel like, well, no one's being compassionate for me. Well, try it anyhow. And who knows if that won't start to bring more back to you at, at the same time. Yeah, so, I, I, mean, I echo that, you know, an angry heart is not a good thing to have and to have um, and to have a, any kind of vindiction towards somebody because of what may have come between the two of you or whatever is not a good spot. I mean, to actually heal that um, so that she's released from the position with the opportunity to progress and send those kinds of um, thoughts and feelings to her is really important for you. Because then you know you haven't released her with malice, right? Exactly. Right. Exactly. And I exactly. think if everybody did that, I know it probably doesn't happen enough, but um, because uh, people get into people's craws and they just don't know how to deal with, with it that way. Yeah. But I it's always echo back to, I always echo back uh, very simply to, a, a, there's a, a banner on my wall over here. And uh, the Dalai Lama says, uh, in the end, you'll be remembered by how much you loved, uh, how many people loved you, and how much you let go. And I, and I, and I look at that simple little statement, and I, I maybe got it wrong. I didn't maybe did it get it exactly right. But my point is, you talked, you started this podcast with love. Um, I said compassion. You said it's the overarching part of compassion. And if we are going to heal as individuals and heal the world, it is about how much we love on this great Valentine's Day that we've got here, 2023. It's about how much uh, others love us. And it's how much we're able to let go, as you just said, there's three, the malice that you might have or the unforgiving attitude that you may carry about somebody into your own DNA that it affects your heart rhythms, right? Um, exactly. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. All so, of that. Exactly. And anything to add on that or? Well, I'll just... I, I love everything you just said. Thank you for the, the recap and the how you essenced it. Um, the only thing I would add is that the spirit of playfulness, uh, I feel for us as individuals, let alone us as a species, <laughs> is essential. That uh, if, if we line up all the existential threats we have right now, it's pretty damn daunting. Just, just one, any one of them. You know, it's like, how are we going to get through that one? And then, then we got all these others. And then we're shooting down Chinese spy balloons. It's just like, <laughs> not that we shouldn't be. We're probably going to. A Chinese spy balloon. 
Doesn't it sound like an animated cartoon? I mean, it's Chinese spy boy. Yeah, it does. Well, Bruce, <laughs> anyway, on this Valentine's Day and every day, I love you. Namaste to you. Thank you for being on Inside Personal Growth. Thank you for sharing about a book which is timeless. Um, from a chaos to coherence. Uh, it's uh, Bruce Cryer and Doc Childray. We'll put a link. You can still get this book, even though he said it's kind of out of print, but at Amazon, it's still up there. Uh, an excellent book for you to get. Uh, get. Also, um, just go to Bruce Cryer, C-R-Y-E-R.com uh, to learn more about Bruce and what he's doing. Um, Bruce, always an honor to speak with you and a pleasure to have you on the show and have you share some of your many years of experiences at HeartMath and um, the things that you've learned and the wisdom you've imparted upon our audience. And namaste to you, my friend. Namaste, Greg. I appreciate seeing you again. It's been great to reconnect lately. And, and thanks so much. This was a great conversation. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.